0: You're listening to Fox on the Wire podcast. Welcome everybody to episode number 67 of Fox on the Wire. Uh, We are here today with a very special guest returning to the show all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Todd Berman,
1: welcome to the show. Craig, thank you for having me and congratulations on uh, – it's such a ridiculous high count. Number 67, like you guys should be super proud of what you're doing down there.
0: Thank you, sir. Yes, yeah, so I think we had you originally on the show somewhere in the episode 20, late 20 region there. So, yeah, I've been trying to pump them out um, and, you know, cover lots of different guests and albums and uh, – we're here today to cover one of our favourite albums, which is why I sort of invited you onto the show, and I'm stoked you said yes, so we can dive deep into Temple of the Dog, which uh, recently celebrated its 30th anniversary earlier this year.
1: Now, you were telling me before, Craig, some of the numbers on, on that record, which I'm fascinated by.
0: I was. I said it was... Released on April 16th, 1991 through A&M Records, initially selling around 70,000 copies, but it would go on to sell over a million and become one of the top 100 albums in 1992. So it was one of those albums that didn't take off straight away out of the gate, but uh, due to a few factors which we'll go into, um, it ended up becoming more successful later on. And I think becoming possibly the most uh, important album of that whole grunge scene. What do you think?
1: I I completely agree. I think that was like a precursor. And, and on a side note, it's no different to Appetite for Destruction, you know, which took a year to, you know, be huge. You know, like yeah. Temple of the Dog was the pre-holy grail of grunge records. Um, it's... I mean, they basically what Rick did with that record is is staggering it's a it's a staggering collection of songs um, and that that whole grunge era was it, i mean it changed society. What we need to yeah. talk about is how it changed society like you know there were there were uh, catalogs for Sears, which is like the American version of like Maya or whatever that they were promoting dressing like a grunge (laughs) rocker with like flannel and jeans and beanies. And like, that's what they did. Mm. Like, that's crazy. Like that, the la. there is no time since the early nineties with the grunge movement. Have we ever had a societal impact the way that grunge did? Like, oh, (laughs) Is that the is that the Kmart link? Oh my god, yeah. that's hilarious! Saw that pop up the other day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Funny, eh. you,
1: you think about it, like all your stuff in your background with Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, you know, Temple of the Dog. Like, I mean, these records were recorded by a genius, you know, and it's he, you know, I think the biggest kudos needs to go to rick parisher rick parisher is the godfather of grunge him and his brother own london bridge studios in seattle i was lucky enough to spend a couple of months rick did a, a phenomenal job uh on a band that i used to be in Duke cartel he he's he's ability to, i mean to get emotion out of a musician is second to none I mean, every producer can, you know, if they're a producer, they're great at their job, but Rick brought out emotion and feel and I am, it, my favourite memory of being a musician in the last 20 years is working with Rick. Nothing compares to working with Rick. I mean, he, yeah. was, he was the godfather. Of, I mean, Rick Pariser is the godfather of grunge. End of story. No no one can compare to that and and i would let me put this in a in a polite way. Nothing since grunge has come close to the impact it's had on society yeah nothing yeah. nothing no one's come nothing has come close to that so and that's that's important to acknowledge his contribution as a producer as a person of music um and rest his soul um He's not with us anymore, but he leaves a legacy that is going to stand for hundreds of years. But what what Rick did for the Seattle music movement is what George Martin did for the Beatles.
0: Wow. Yeah. So what was it? You're originally from Melbourne. Uh, Yeah. What was that like, someone originally being from Melbourne, to go over to Seattle and work with someone like Rick?
1: Um, It's funny because I I don't think I ever really – understood the impact that it would have on my life Mm. to be completely honest. I mean, he is, I mean, he's, I, I didn't truly know what I was getting into. I didn't realize the caliber of um, talent that I was about to work with, but I didn't Mm. actually realize the impact it would have on my life. So everything that, you know, that whole experience led me to, you know, not doing band stuff anymore and producing and writing. And, you know, fast forward six, seven years later, I'm in Seattle at Bob Lang's studio producing records with, you know, legends of the Seattle music scene. I'm like, Mm -hmm. how, how, why is this kid from Melbourne? How does he, how does he have the right to be producing and co-writing a record with, you know, like guys from Candlebox, you know, these guys have sold tens of millions of records and and I'm producing them. And that all came from what I learned from Rick. And I said to the guys at the time, I said, you are getting a Rick Parrish a record. You're not getting a record from me. You are getting a Rick Parrish a record because all I'm doing is, is giving you everything that he taught me. Yeah. So, So, I like, I'm beyond grateful for my – Seattle is a massive part of my life. Massive. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, so you actually recorded with him at the same studio that Temple of the Dog recorded this album at uh, London Bridge Studios. Was there – what was it like in there? Um, You know, was it a place where he had photos on the wall of the albums that he'd recorded there? sort of like Sound City Studios, you know, like we saw in Dave Grohl's documentary, was it sort of a lot of memorabilia in the place or was it just a bit
1: of a dingy old studio? No, it was uh, was in an area called Montlake Terrace, which is just north of Seattle. I mean, Seattle's, I mean, traffic is horrific. You can, it's like LA, you can go like two miles in like 30 minutes um so we were lucky enough to to stay up there work in the studio. It was sort of in an industrial area um very um you wouldn't know there was a music studio there but as soon as you walk in it was yeah i mean i mean come on it's like there's platinum records all over the wall and i you know you know rick was kind enough to relay so much wisdom uh, and kindness about you know, hey, you know, like, um, one of the songs on Pearl Jam 10, he was, you know, Rick was a phenomenal pianist, like, out of the world, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, and, um, what's that song <laughs> on one of the um Pearl Jam uh 10 songs? Uh, that's uh, I, I think I sung Black, yeah, uh, Rick. Rick was the one that played all those piano parts ah. at the end of that. So London Bridge is a very simple studio. You walk in the door, you've got your main area, you chill out the kitchen and just platinum records everywhere. Then you go in the main studio and had an old 60s SSL, which is always like, you know, rip out the the channel strip WD-40. <laughs> you know, trying to get it going. But the, the actual main room is, is a, is a long rectangular room. You walk in a beautiful grand piano to the right. It's not super long and deep. Uh, And then at the end there was probably a three foot high riser with a brick wall on the rear, which was the drum riser. And then you had like a vocal booth and then like the studio, like I remember that studio so well, but, I remember like we were you know, have some isolation rooms, isolation rooms for amps. But when you would be in the main room and you're recording live, because you always wanted to capture the live performance, (laughs) like you're sitting there and our drummer at the time was playing drums with the brick wall behind him, but the riser was carpeted, but everything else in the main room was like wood floors. And you'd you'd hear him hit the drums and you'd have him in your in your in your fall back in your, in your cans. And I'm like going, I feel like I'm listening to Pearl Jam 10 with like (laughs) the drum sound. The drum sounds in that room are exact. Like if you go and play drums in that room and mic it up, it sounds like the Pearl Jam 10 record,
0: Right, okay.
1: which is a a kid growing up that you're like, you know, everyone in Australia, we, we, in the nineties, we had that grunge movement. It's fascinating. And Mm. I'm like, I felt like, you're like I didn't deserve to be there, you know, in a way, but I'm like, I'm beyond grateful. That I'm like, I got to work with a, a, an incredibly talented producer, but like someone that like bought the best out of people, you know, who's was, he was about people. He was about, you know, your performance. He was about your mindset. It wasn't about technicalities with Rick. So all of that, uh, temple of the dog, all of the, his era was, um, his ability to get the best out of people, you know, yeah. strip away what you think, you know, like I remember playing like guitar parts and I was a rhythm player and I was always pride myself on being, you know, technically correct with my rhythm playing. Yeah. You, know, you grow up like ACDC in excess where phenomenal ry- rhythm players, like the best of the best. And then you go in there and you're trying to be completely, you know, accurate with the metronome. Mm. And he goes, don't do that. (laughs) And you're like, you're like, what do you, what do you mean? Don't do that. And he goes, I want you to hit the guitar. I want you to shake it. I want you to put emotion (laughs) into it. And I'm like going, what, what what, what do you mean? What am I doing? And then I was (laughs) like, I was like, Oh, like he's putting the emotion into music.
0: Yeah, because sometimes I know from experience, like once you step in that studio, you're stripping yeah. away a lot of your, uh, well, emotion, I guess, because you want to play everything perfectly, you know, and you're you sacrifice some of your stylistic things. Sometimes, I mean, you know, obviously it comes with the experience that you learn how to approach the studio better, but. Yeah. Yeah, It's such a a big step, stepping into a studio, and it's a big deal, and uh, all of a sudden you start doing things a little bit differently.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny, like I I think the best way I can uh, give that into the future tense is – I was doing the Lotus crush record in Seattle at Bob Lang. So, you know, the Foo Fighters, uh, documentary sound, uh, where they went to all the different studios. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to spend like a year working at Bob Lang's studio in, uh, in Richmond, in, uh, Seattle and, you know, phenomenal studio. I mean, incredible studio. One of the you know three you've got Bob Langs you've got Studio X you've got um, you know Rick's old studio but like the one takeaway from that was you know was, and I want to give great props to Peter Clat who was you know the original guitarist of Candlebox um, and he was in Lotus Cross along with Scott McCardo Terry McDermott all those boys and I remember. He was so open when I produced that record that I went in and I, and I said to him, it's, it's a beautiful story. Like, you know, he's newly a dad, just a, had this beautiful girl with him and his wife, and we were struggling to get the take. You know, so we're in Bob Lang's, and I just went into him and I said, and this is all from Rick. This is Rick's tutoring. And, and I went up to Peter and I said, hey, um, we are doing this beautiful song called I protest non-sparant, uh, like uh, a Latin song title. And, and it for I can't breathe. And, and I went into Peter and I said, look, you know, I called him the general, I go general look uh, he is very firm, <laughs> you know, and yeah. he was struggling to, 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 to capture this part emotionally. And I went into him and I said, Hey, can I ask you a favor? And he's a very open-minded man. And I said, hey, when you're playing this part, I want you to pretend that you're seeing your daughter in front of you right now when you perform this. Mm. And we went back in the control room, we pressed record, and he started bawling. Like, oh. I mean, <laughs> he was fucking bawling, Craig. Mm. And he started it, it makes me so happy right now to remember this. And, and he started playing and the emotion through his playing and that mm. performance, like you can hear him sort of go, you know, we recorded the record to tape before dumping into Pro Tools and you can hear him, oh, <laughs> like you can no. hear it <laughs> at the beginning of the, the record, but it, 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 it's through the whole song mm. and it's beautiful. And that's the whole Rick Parisher principle is that beautiful emotion and authenticity that, I, you know, I'm like, I was a little, I was, a, it was, it was a big ass to, you know, guy that's, you know, incredibly successful musician, writer, phenomenal guitar player to be like, Hey, can I ask you something so personal? Mm. And he was so open-minded and I've incredible, Gratitude to him for being that because I listen to it now and I'm like, that's beautiful. That was mm. the Seattle gift. That was the Rick Parisher gift was unlocking the emotion and recording it to tape. That's the gift of the Seattle sound. Was mm. emotion, you know, because when the kids were locked in, you know, 200 days of the year, 150, 200 days of the year, it rained and they're in their basement playing songs yeah. is why you got Nirvana. Yeah, That's yeah. why you got Nirvana. That's why you got these songs that you're like Temple of the Dog, Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam. You got these records because mm. people, you know, take out Eddie Vedder who was a California surfer kid, but like, you know, these guys were like sort of, not a press, but like, it was tough on them. You know, you're like, Mm. all I had was my music and there was that desperation and hunger. That's what grunge and that sound and those studios, those studios had a sound, Mm. had a sound, you know, and it's sad that, you know, some of them are struggling, you know, no studio X isn't open anymore. Like, that got like bought out to build an apartment complex, but like, mm. you know, like that's why like London bridge and, you know, McCready studio in Seattle, like, those studios are so important. You know, those, the, the, the history of those studios, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, this is an emotional record. So it sounds like Rick was the perfect person to, to produce this. I mean, a bit of backstory, On this album and how it came to be, if uh, for those of you who may be new to this album, um, it came about when Seattle band Mother Love Bone, their front man, Andy Wood, died of a heroin overdose. At the age of 24 on March 19th in 1990, um, they kept him on life support long enough for family and friends to come and say goodbye, Chris Cornell being one of them uh, because him and Cornell were roommates They'd often share, or you know, demo things together and listen to each other's demos. So Cornell had a a huge emotional connection uh, with with this, and that's why he put this project together, uh, which I think was originally meant to just be a single, but it turned into a whole album. Um, and in Pearl Jam's twentieth uh, anniversary documentary, Cornell. Um, sort of surmised, that was the, when he walked into the hospital and saw Andy on life support, that was the death of the innocence of the the grunge scene. It wasn't later when Kurt died, it was seeing Andy like that because that whole scene was a pretty tight-knit community and scene, wasn't it? Like they they all supported each other's bands and uh, would go to each other's shows and they just had this nice little, thing that that must have been amazing to be a part of and then it sort of obviously exploded worldwide but uh...
1: i i think I, I i think if if you haven't been in seattle you, you can't understand how much of a tight-knit community it is yeah it's like you know like say let's take the seahawks you know like you know they they have their own like uh, the thirteens or the twelves? I'm sorry, I'm like blanking right now. But like you, you, you're a part of that city. So if like the Seahawks are playing, and you're in any bar in Seattle, the bartenders are, they won't even look at you. You know they're <laughs> like you need to order when you know like I think it's the twelves. I'm sorry, what anyone, my Seattle friends. I'm sorry, I blanked for a minute. <laughs> I apologize. Um, but like, it's such a community. Seattle is a community. They support each other. You know, there's phenomenal musicians. You even look like fast forward, you look at like Macklemore, you know, and Ryan Lewis, that, that, that whole scene, you've got one of the most exquisite, um, uh, players in, in Seattle, in Andrew Jocelyn. Who I worked with extensively on that Lotus Christ record, phenomenal human being, phenomenal. Uh, you know his orchestration is staggering. How good he is! He do all the Ryan, uh, the Macklemore and Ryan Lewis stuff. Just it's a very tight community. Seattle, even you know this is you know seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, even twenty years fast forward. Seattle's music community is so tight-knit and mm. I, I, I like a part of my life of being there for so many years is just I'm, I love the I love the music scene so I guess if people are listening to this they're like why did those records happen why were they so great it's because of the people mm. people in Seattle are awesome I love being in Seattle I, I love I just love it I, I, just great people, great musicians. I mean, uh, grunge. <laughs> yeah. Look what, look what they did with grunge, like mm. pheno- phenomenal players, like phenomenal singers, like phenomenal yeah. bands, phenomenal songwriters. I mean, these are the, the greatest songwriters came from this sleepy rainy town where they're like, Oh my God, can it just stop raining? It's like, they were depressed and they wrote these great songs, you know, yeah. like that's that city is, I just adore that city. I, I, I would live there tomorrow in a heartbeat, no problem. Yeah. You know? I spent
0: one day there <laughs> back in 2007. I did a trip to America, and uh, we were originally going to go to Aberdeen to see Kurt's mm-hmm. hometown, um, mm-hmm. but that didn't sort of, pan out like I had to jump in a car and all of a sudden learn how to drive on the other side of the road. And Seattle, and, and, yeah, Seattle and Seattle traffic. And Seattle traffic and <laughs> you know what, I didn't sleep the night before and I'm like, <laughs> nah. So we turned around yeah. and um, we actually looked up Kurt's address where he lived in Seattle in the heavy in, Heavier Than Heaven biography by Charles R. Mm-hmm. Cross and so we drove back to Seattle and um, actually found his his house there and was it Lake Washington Boulevard? And I think so. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just hung around there, hung out in the park there, and it was uh, it was surreal. I I don't know how else to explain it, but it was a beautiful place. Um, obviously a lot of darkness there. Uh, huge, which, huge darkness. It was, it was beautiful, and I just I can't actually believe I was there. So, um, but Chip. there's yeah.
1: Do you know what's funny about Seattle is it's like um, it reminds me greatly of Melbourne.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. i picked pick because up on that too.
1: You've got that um, a great uh, open vibe, you know, it's on the water. Uh, the people are phenomenal. Everyone's active outdoors, like, you know, it, it, it beautifully picturesque. Um, and, it, but, you know, it's a great city, Mm. you know, like um, it's definitely like the major industrial companies ruined it, you know, like the Amazons and the Boeings and all that like destroyed the city. And it's sad now because it's, it's a, it's a, it's sort of like that, you know, like Seattle and San Francisco and L.A., like it's extreme poverty now mm. because the big tech companies come in mm. and, you know, the art that we loved growing up with and the, and the ability to be an artist and afford rent, they're all gone. Yeah. One of my best, 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 best friends, Justin Armstrong, who is a phenomenal engineer, producer, mixer, who is like, you know, one of the best in Seattle of all time. He actually moved out of Seattle, you know, because like, it's like, how can I afford to live in Seattle? And he moved down to Slidell in New Orleans and, Mm. you know, it's just unaffordable because of big tech, you know, that tech industry um, it's like come in, you know, you know, we're going to pay you X amount and that pays, you know, doubles, the the rent of places Mm. you know it's like and there's like the soul of seattle is decimating and that's really sad to me because so many iconic records i'm like i don't know about you craig but tell me the last record that you heard that you're like this record rules my life
0: Mm. it's probably from the grunge era
1: and, and everyone goes, "Oh, you guys are like love the old stuff I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. When it changed society mm. and culture mm-hmm. and that you are in a catalogue buying a flannel <laughs> then yeah. that you know because no one's sitting here going you know i I want to look like Billy Eilish, yeah no, <laughs> yeah, you know, because there's no and and i I don't care because I'm no one but like." There's zero soul in that record. There's yeah. zero emotion. I'm like, if I listen to hunger strike, I'm like in a hundred years, I'll listen to hunger strike and be like, how is the emotion in that performance? The emotion mm. in the singing, like, and the, and the difference of Cornell to Vetter vocally and how they complement each other. Like it's, Makes me upset just thinking how beautiful those records were, you know, like beautiful records, you know.
0: Well, they were real songs by real people, by real performers, and that's a bit of a cliche to say that, but it's just Yeah. It's it's true. And, you know, with a lot of these albums uh turning 30, especially on this podcast, I wanted to celebrate that. Uh, because these albums mean a lot to me personally and you know, there's still great albums, like I um I did an episode on Nevermind the other night with uh, Ashley Naylor, which I haven't put up yet. Okay. Um, and you know, I wanted to reach out to you and because I know you earned a lot of the same stuff I am, and um, obviously we picked Temple of the Dog, and uh, there's so much history in this album, and when it came out, there was still so much to come after. And I think one of the reasons why it didn't take off straight away, like Soundgarden had released, uh, I think, three albums. But mm-hmm. late, later this year, or sorry, later that year in 91, in October, they would release Bad Motorfinger, which would yeah. you know, shoot them up the charts. And um, when this Help came out...
1: record. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Pearl Jam hadn't even come out yet. Um, actually, they, I don't even know if they'd formed. Oh, yeah, they'd just formed when this came out. But Eddie Vedder's first vocal performance was on this record. Is that right? On Hunger Strike.
1: I don't, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know the music history behind that. But yeah. I, I, I do know the, the effect that that record had. But you, it's like you are completely correct that, like, yeah. something else helped shoot it up the stratosphere because it's like we were saying before it's like we would go into like the brashes or because it wasn't JB Hi-Fi back then we'd go mm. in and look at this record and the artwork on the record is horrible let's yeah, be honest it
0: is. it is it doesn't
1: it doesn't make you go i want to buy that you no. know <laughs> i mean then that's just as a consumer seeing that but it's like knowing the songs that were on that record Pretty terrible <laughs> it's pretty terrible but like the songs on that record oh my god yeah like I, I i feel like someone was ripping my heart out you know like hunger strike sailor so the first song it's like we were discussing about prior to the podcast is that um the first, song I ever, the first two songs I ever played live on stage was Hunger Strike, Temple of the Dog, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't tell you the other one, which was Cracker Man by Stone oh, Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots, yeah, cool. Yeah, so awesome. they were the, the first two songs that I ever played live on stage was two huge grunge bands. Mm. I don't know if you call Stone Temple Pilots specifically. Gr- I don't know if you could label the Pilots just specifically grunge. I wouldn't say that. I'd say they're 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 not that, but specifically Temple of the Dog, one hundred percent, like that whole grunge movement. But like the the lyrics, the melody, the mm-hmm. the you know (laughs) like it's like the opposite you know like and then like as soon as you hear like cornell come in you know what the no one talks about is their vocal performances besides being staggering were not greatly in time
0: Mm, okay
1: yeah right they weren't together like it, it, it wasn't like because we got we're now so used to perfectly timed drum parts, vocals, bass parts, synths, whatever. It's so perfectly in time. They those vocal performance weren't perfectly in time, and that's the beautiful mm. thing. Yeah. You're like yeah. when you hear it, you're like, I don't mind. Like you're like, <laughs> oh my god, they're like, they're not in time. <laughs> it's it's like listen to it tonight. Yeah, when you're still so. doing this and just be like oh, shit, they're not actually that 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 much in time, but that was the emotion and, and the beauty of the performance. You know what I mean? Like,
0: Well, Eddie Vedder wasn't meant to be a part of this. He wasn't originally planned, and he was only on a couple of songs, Hunger Strike being the main one, but yeah, I think Cornell was trying to sing those lower parts, and they sort of said he was having some issues with it. I don't know what that – I'm mm-hmm. sure he could have done it, but – and then they just pulled in Eddie, so there was probably not a lot of rehearsal for it before the recording, which may be part of the timing issue. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it was kind of like Eddie wasn't originally going to be a part of this, which is makes the whole story even cooler, you know?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I think that like you know he was so y- like so new to the whole thing, you know, yep. like I don't know like if you I don't know if he knew of how much he knew of Cornell, you and I would never know that. But like, you know, you, you as a singer, if, if you know, and not I'm saying me, I'm saying as a singer for uh, Eddie Vedder, and you hear Cornell sing, <laughs> would you be intimidated?
0: Yeah, I'd probably turn around and go back to San Diego.
1: <laughs> You'd be like, stuff this. How does this guy say? Yeah. Like, I don't. <laughs> you guys can't be serious about me being on this song where this other guy, this <laughs> insane <Yeah>. generational talent <laughs> is singing and he was like, I don't want yeah. you know, and you know, Connor's like, Aah! and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like it's, yep. it's crazy, isn't it? Like that's the beautiful thing about conversations about these records is you're like, how did Vetta feel?
0: Yeah. It was probably like, who's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this Cornell bloke? Yeah. I, I thought I was a good singer before I came to Seattle and then you got this Cornell guy. Fucking hell, mate. But yeah, uh, nah, so- Cornell actually took Vetter under his wing, so to speak, you know, because he was, was the new guy to the whole Seattle scene and, and mm-hmm. Cornell was the main one that sort of, you know, dragged him, him in. The wind. Took Which him under the wing. Took him under the wing. Yeah, Which is- I
1: love that. It's how like uh, future great musicians happen, like yep. a mentor or someone coming in and being like, hey, I'm not intimidated by this person. I want this person to succeed.
0: Yeah, yep. And Cornell hadn't hit his peak yet, like in terms of mm-hmm. success with Soundgarden, I think, you know, we Louder Than Love in 1990, so that was probably out when him and Vetter met. So, you know, they, were, mm-hmm. they had experience, but they hadn't hit their peak Commercially yet, um, bad motorfinger hadn't come out. Like I said, yeah. Uh, so he was what still up record. and coming himself, Cornell. So, yeah.
1: can you imagine if, like, like right now, like with everything that's going on and music industry in the world right now, can you imagine hearing like a bad motorfinger record right now? What it would like the anger and the Mm. angst and the raw honesty and the writing if 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 like a K Rock or I didn't even say Triple M because Triple M's garbage but um like uh, you know one of the the stations played like a song like that that people would be like what is this yeah like uh, like is that possible anymore
0: is that even possible.
1: I think right now I think everyone's, I think everyone's open to anything. It's like, uh, I just think people like, where did that song come from? How yeah. did that, how did that song come about? Like, I never would have thought, like, I think that's fascinating. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, I, I feel like it's a perfect time for like a new era, like a new, like you can't repeat like a grunge or a Beatles or whatever, nah. or Disco or an 80s or hard rock era, but, like, it would be so fascinating to see, like, how it would work in society right now mm. if, if an angst record came like that, you know, because mm. that all back then was about performance. It's not like going, what's your social media numbers? <laughs> yeah what's this numbers that you, I love your reaction to that. Like, <laughs> like, it's like, I do not give a shit. I didn't, I do not care. I, I care about the song. Are you on TikTok? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, go on TikTok. You'll get a record deal. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, that's why the music sucks.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like, and it's like, they're going, oh, you're just two older musicians that don't care. It's like, no, we just recognize what great music is and this mm. sure shit ain't that
0: yeah i know right it's a, definitely a different time and you know it's a lot to do with social media and uh, uh it's a mad world right now but I who know. knows someone might be cooking up something brilliant in their basement because they're so freaking angry like a lot of us and uh you're probably not going to hear it on the radio though so you know you're looking in the wrong spot if uh you're not going to get a team spirit coming on the radio. Uh,
1: no, I mean, but that's the thing too. It's like, you know, it's, it's, a different, it's a different world where we grew up on, like, listening to, like, three or four radio stations. We didn't have Spotify. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't yep. even have the internet. Like, the early 90s um, where we were listening to stuff, it's like we got that from, like, You know, like magazines, we got that from going to Brashes, and I keep saying Brashes. It's like that's the store. This was pre JB Hi Fi, which was Mm. like an epitome of a superstore. So we didn't have those um, abilities. But you know, I feel like the main point of all of that is there was um, labels back in that day were able to sort of filter great acts. Because now it's like a free-for-all. Now there's a, a zillion acts, you know what oh, I mean? It's like, totally. it, it's, it's like. and I listen to it and I'm like, next, 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 next. Yeah. But sometimes you hear like, so the, the, the last time I, I remember hearing a band on the radio, it was maybe one or two in the morning. We're driving out of, uh, where were we? We're driving out of um, Bob Lang's in Seattle, uh, back to uh, our engineer's house and, yeah, one or two in the morning, like 18-hour day, and we're in his truck and we hear Royal Blood. Mm. And um, we both were like, you know, exhausted recording music all day, but we're like, should <laughs> we turn this up right now? And we turned it up and I'm like, what is this? The last time I did that was Royal Blood and it was 2000 and 2014, 2015, where I actually turned it up. And I'm like, what is this band? What is this um, looseness? What is this aggression? What is this Mm. ability to say no to songwriting rules? And Mm. that's what I loved. And that's the Mm. last time where I was like, oh, wow, what is this? So I think we missed that. I I think truly, like, it's so homogenized now that... uh, And I just think there's not the same level of talent to be completely honest with you. I I don't think there's a, and to give you the best example, I'll give you Nashville. There was a report maybe two, three, four years ago that 85% of the songwriters in Nashville are gone. Really? 85%. Yeah. And and uh, I'm not sure if it was like an ASCAP article, BMI, the you know, the APRAs for over here or CSAC oh. or whatever it was, it was essentially like they're like, well, we can't earn money. Mm. Um, there's this whole streaming scenario now. So it's like people, you know, they, they don't want to write a nevermind. They don't want to write a temple of the dog. They don't want to write a Pearl Jam 10, like Pearl Jam will never get a better record than Pearl Jam 10. Yep. Versus was pretty close. Yeah, but And, you know, and I don't know if you know the story and it doesn't matter now because no one's going to, you know, no one's going to sue us, but um, Pearl Jam fucked over Rick. Really? On the royalties on Pearl Jam 10. Huh. Yeah, and I'm no. and I'm saying that out of him telling me that, and I don't really give a shit because um, Rick was beyond incredible and instrumental in doing that record, and they fucked him over on his producer points.
0: Mm. Right? I didn't and know if, that. Pearl
1: Jam, if Pearl Jam hears that, who am I? They don't give two mm. fucks about me. They don't give two fucks about us. But, you know, that's the truth. Right. That's the truth. You know, Pearl Jam did the wrong thing by Rick. Mm. They, didn't, they didn't give him his points. Yeah, right. Wow. And that's, that's really bad, but that's yeah. the truth. There's, it, it's sort of like, you know, doing, a, you know, a tour of a city and then going, everything's beautiful about that city, but shit, you shouldn't tell you that. <laughs> oh, you know, it's it's the truth of, you know, that, and, it, you know, you know I'm going to stick up for Rick. He's not around to stick up for himself. And mm. um, the boys in Pearl Jam, you know, didn't do the right thing by him in royalty wise. And I've had that happen to me. I've had that yeah. happen to me in different scenarios where people don't, that's a problem. Of, the Probably the musicians is they think that they have to live in a scenario of desperation mm. and poverty, which is, like, imagine, you know, when the labels originally signed, like, Pink Floyd or the Beatles or whatever, whoever they signed, they signed them as, as a development. They're like, go and discover you. Go and discover your sound you know, now it's like, oh, you didn't do anything, so you're gone. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like imagine, uh, you know, someone is saying like Zeppelin, Floyd, Beatles, whatever, that, okay, you've, you've had one song, you've gone. Yeah. Does so that make they, sense?
0: Yeah, so a lot of those bands, they were allowed to develop basically
1: yeah. uh, before
0: they got booted if they weren't any good, whereas now if you're not already up to a certain level. They're not even going to touch her, let alone if they do sign you and you fail, then you're out sort of thing. Is that what you mean?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I I think that's a lot of the problem with the quality of the music. let Let the people develop. Let them be the best they can. Give them a chance to shine. Give them a chance to ride a shine on you crazy diamond or uh, you know, like um, even flow, and you know everyone would be like even flow. I'm like, that's a great song. It you know what I mean? Song. It's a great song. Like, yeah. Hung, hunger strike. Say hello to heaven of the Temple of Dog record. These these songs are so pure and yeah. rich with songwriting talent, mm. and and the and the, the bottom line is the reason, the two reasons why they're great songs any of the things we just spoke about, is songwriting, talent, and emotion. They captured the emotion that people hear it and they go, Mm. that relates to me. I can hear that. I understand. I I hear the pain in his voice, her voice. That's what they're attracted to, you know.
0: I mean, look at at this album where this fits into Chris Cornell's uh, timeline of his career. So mm-hmm. he was just about to release what I would consider the most brutal is not the right word, but probably the the heaviest Soundgarden album being Bad Motorfinger. Would you agree? Maybe hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. So you know that was going to come out later, uh, maybe six months after this. So he'd written these beautiful songs like Say Hello to Heaven, uh, Wooden Jesus, Times of Trouble. Um, Mm. Call Me a Dog, which became one of my favourites when he started playing that acoustic. So he'd written these songs, but he'd also written Slaves and Bulldozers, Jesus Christ Pose in a separate project. So Cornell could, and that's why I love Cornell so much because he covered both bases and he wasn't trying to. It's just that was part of his soul and his emotion that he could write this softer stuff, dare I say softer stuff, and then he'd write this uh, this heavier stuff where he'd be screaming his balls off. So you get both sides of the coin with him, which is why I love him, basically. And so, um,
1: so think about this, Craig. Think about the fact if someone in 2021 wrote and released Jesus Christ Pose.
0: <laughs> and the video and released the oh, video for it.
1: I, I, I think that's... Art is the most important thing in society. Mm. Art is the most important thing because it it it, um, it, it makes you critically think. Mm. Which? Why did that person think mm. that? Why did that person write that song? Why did that person paint that painting? It's mm. the it, it, it's enabling critically, not critically critical thinking, which is absent in society now so back yep. then they, they weren't judged on writing a song called jesus christ pose mm. they, they weren't judged on it they're like people were just like they were curious yeah they weren't demonstrative they were mm. curious they're like why do you think that mm. why are you writing that song tell me about that song now it's like how excuse me, how dare you write that song? Mm. What is wrong with you? It's like, it's like a a curious society versus a, um, a a, a finger pointing society, like a hurt society, like a controlled society. It's like, like ask that person, why they, they wrote that song. What is it? Why did they wrote it? What does it mean to them? These are the questions that that's what art provokes those questions. Mm. And that's why you and I are so, so enamored by grunge because it was, um, I, I never met anyone. This is the best way to say it. When I was in high school, late high school, and those big records came out, I never met one person ever that said they didn't like those records.
0: Yeah. Okay. Ever. Yeah.
1: Ever. Not one person I met ever said they didn't like those records. And I bet like you they at, still like them. Hundred percent. And let's throw yeah. in. Let's throw in a left field amongst that that it wasn't grunge. Let's throw in Jeff Buckley.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, because it, it branched you off into oh, similar. Artists and bands like you didn't just yeah. stop at grunge and it was all grunge and only grunge. You did mm-hmm. branch off. You got stem, Stone Temple Pilots, um, Jeff Buckley. Uh, what else have we got in there? Uh, um, Chili Peppers. You know, just
1: alternative. Chili Peppers to a way like I think like Tea Party. The Tea yeah. Party was huge for me. Like I, I'm a monster uh, Jeff Martin fan.
0: Mm, um, yeah, he's great.
1: That Edge is a Twilight record and then the, twi- the Transmission record in the 90s. Like, but, And here's the other thing. The beautiful thing about that era from, like, 90, 91 to, like, 96, 97 was the most beautiful era of music, and then we got New Metal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, then we had to go to Limp Bizkit, and I'm like, oh, my God. God, this is like this is like going to horrendous pop in the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean It's like i'm like i would I would rather shave my balls with a cheese grater <laughs> than listen to that music. You know what I mean it's like yeah. if if you walk down the street and and met someone they're like what do you what do you do, blah blah blah? What music do you like, blah blah blah? And they said to you, Limp biscuit you'd be like. What? You <laughs> did it all you know, for the
0: nookie. I did it all for the nookie, the cookie. And like, hey, look like, what he's doing now. What, uh, he's got that, like, real dad vibe look. And I think that's what the new song's called is dad vibes or something. Have you seen that, Fred Durst? I watched,
1: I watched the video where he's wearing the grey wig and all of that, <laughs> and he's, like, walking around the stage going, well, I feel you remember that uh, guy Richard Cheese that did all the you know uh, uh, the like the standard like hey I give it all up for the nookie you know (laughs) like and I'm like I'm like I feel like Fred Durst is a parody of himself at this point. Oh, I can't. He looks. So
0: what's he happening? Looks, 2021 is the most fucked up year I can if remember. Limp
1: Bizkit, if Limp Biscuit <laughs> are doing shows and we're having to watch the horrificness, uh, and, it, I don't even know if it's the same band, but, like, I saw the Lollapalooza set. I think it was the Lollapalooza set, and I'm like, this is embarrassing. Mm. You know, I'm like, what, why? It's a, it's a cash grab. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. Like, and then, like I'm saying, we go back and we look at the, you know, the grunge records and all that. It's like they'll be here in a hundred years. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and we'll look at like New Metal and Limp Biscuit and Nickelback and, you know, we tour with Nickelback and I've got nothing but nice things to say about those guys. I, 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 they, they treated me and, the band that I was in phenomenally they were lovely lovely and and uh, there is no right for me to speak ill of them but that whole era of music is not going to be remembered no it just it just isn't and there's nothing wrong with saying that Mm but teen spirit you know um Soundgarden Stone Temple Pilots, you know, and even throw into that, like I don't know if Alanis Morissette record was in that era. Like, you know, great records were written in that era because people were allowed to develop and yeah. talk about their experiences and mm-hmm. life, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's what I love about that era, you know?
0: Well, this, this Temple of the Dog album was obviously a tribute to Andy, started by Chris. Uh, and the name Temple of the Dog came from a Mother Love Bone song. So yep. the lyric was, I want to show you something like joy inside my heart. Seems I've been living in the Temple of the Dog. Mm. Um, and that was from the song Man of Golden Words. Um, so in Temple of the Dog, because this... A lot of history st- sort of was coming together here. It was conceived by Chris Cornell as a tribute to Andy. So the lineup included Stone Gossard on rhythm guitar, yep. who was in Mother Love Bone, yep. Jeff Ament on bass, who was in Mother Love Bone. Yep. Uh, he also did the artwork for this album, the shitty artwork. Oh, wow. Well, there was shitty <laughs> um, artwork, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's iconic now, but it's shitty. Um, Mike yeah. McCready on lead guitar. He sort of came yeah. out of left field in all this, I think. Uh, three of
1: the five yeah four of the five out of Pearl Jam (laughs) yeah Mike
0: uh Matt Matt Cameron on drums from Soundgarden so it was Chris and Matt from Soundgarden um and you know after Temple of the Dog Mike, Stone and Jeff would go on to form Pearl Jam with Eddie and then you know later in uh 91 they'd release 10 which would blow up straight away I think and uh yeah, and then Bad Motorfinger would get some popularity and then a lot of yeah. people came back to this Temple of the Dog album that sort of – but I think, yeah, this album's became, become more and more important over time as we lost uh, more grunge legends, including Chris yeah. himself, amazingly. Um, Lane that's why Staley. I struggled. Yep. Lane uh, Staley, Kurt.
1: yeah. Kurt. Yeah. Uh, it it – it, it, it you wonder how, why they were so tortured, but like the, the music is just, Oh, I can't even deal with like how much I love that, that era, you know, like that era was, you know, like I said, those first song I ever played on stage was hunger strike. Like mm. um, that's in, that's embedded in my soul is, yep. is that era and those records, those performances, the songwriting, uh, and and nothing comes close to it now like I'm like I just just let me go record a record and 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 not give two shits and write whatever the the hell I want and just release it and record it because I feel like that's what that they had that ability I mean they wouldn't let them record shit and release it but like the yeah. ability to be free be artists write the songs that you love that's I miss those records you know Yep,
0: yeah. yep. Yeah. And you know, um, back on Hunger Strike, it was the video for Hunger Strike as well that was uh, that became pretty iconic. Uh, filmed in Discovery Park in Seattle, like you watch that now, and that just sums up crunch.
1: <laughs> it's oh, amazing. You know what? I'm gonna watch it after we finish this. I'm gonna watch <laughs> it and be like, i like walking through the fields, and I'm like Cornell. Yep. Like yep. he was a good looking dude too. Like Cornell oh, was yeah. a handsome man. Good looking man, you know what I mean, like you know, and he was a grunge rocker, you know like like singing like that that had a set of pipes like that
0: yeah.
1: i actually I actually have a story about Cornell that a buddy of mine told me about how he'd used to warm up in the studio he used oh, yeah. to like he used to like grab like a pillow and he'd sing like like full voice <laughs> into a pillow. So a right. story that you'd never would have heard, but he used to sing full voice and get that uh, that backwards compression into his throat, so it wasn't to warm up. He used to sing into a pillow. True story. So From what, the, what horse, the, from the horses' mouth. What's the benefit mouth. of that? I, I I don't know. I'm 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm not a vocal superstar, but I do know that friends of mine who worked with him told me that story that he would, mm. he would do that and, and no, pillow cushion, whatever, just to yeah. get that, um uh you know, that, like that backwards pressure that, that you weren't having to like be like, ah! like he'd like, you know, like there was that, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to look it up. Mm. I, I'm just telling you stories that, that I've heard and, and people might be like, how do you know? I'm like, um, because my friend worked on the record, so <laughs> yeah, know. So that's he he knows. So that's truth, and I'm I'm not going to name names, but
0: yeah, yeah. I've, I've, oh, that's I've, fascinating. I'd I'd love to see someone like Cornell work, and I'd just love to pick his brain. And I think I've read Terry Date. He was, he was a producer. Oh yeah, Terry Date. Yeah 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 yeah. He, he said the only person that broke more, ch- hang on, the only person that broke more chairs or stools in the studio than Phil Anselmo from Pantera yeah. was Chris Cornell. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? Interesting. So, um. Terry yeah.
1: Date. Wow. Yeah. Well, he's not the calmest person on the planet, but yeah. <laughs> did,
0: did he, he produced Bad Motor Finger. Is that Terry I, Date?
1: I'm I can't sure. remember. I can't remember. I'd have to look that up.
0: I'm pretty sure. And, um, yeah. So. Uh, and now the band, well, yeah, they call Temple of the Dog a supergroup. I don't know about that. Like they didn't actually tour this album until the 20th anniversary in 2016. They did a seven date tour in the US.
1: I, oh my God. I saw that. No, I remember that. I God, yeah. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. That yeah. was incredible. Yeah.
0: But they didn't tour it back in 91, obviously. They're no, busy with their other bands. So, could you call it a supergroup or was it just a project? Would you say? No,
1: I, 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 uh, I think it was. People call it a supergroup because of the way we call supergroups now, like yep. Audio Slave. Yeah, you know, like Audio Slave was a supergroup. Um, yep. Velvet Revolver was yep. a supergroup. Those they they were supergroups without question. I, yep. I I think this was a unintentional version of what people now call a supergroup mm. because I think back then that you know they were just doing it for their friend and they just wanted to I think it was about art I didn't think it was about in a supergroup and let's go make a record. They made a record because of Andy Wood. they made a record because they needed to say they needed to grieve they needed to talk about it they needed to put it on tape, but it's this Seattle community and Unless you've, you know, you've been to Seattle, but unless you've lived in Seattle, you know the people. They are the greatest people. It is the greatest city. I love that city with all my heart. Like, Mm. it's art. Those people so much history. History. They made art. Mm. There's so much, like, they were every it's raining 200 days a year. They're like, they're depressed. They're in their basements. They're making records. Like you look at like even the one where they went and did like, uh, Sonic highways with Foo Fighters, you know, and they did it at Bob Lang's in Seattle. They got there and it was sunny. They're like, well, we came to Seattle for bloody, you know, like, dreary and raining and you know that's that's what we were hoping and it was a nice day you know like multiple days but that's why that's what people thought of seattle because it, that is seattle you know that's yep. what you get when you're in seattle and it's you know i've lived there for probably 18 months of my life you know i've mm-hmm. lived in seattle and i just God, i could live there tomorrow i love that city
0: yeah, I didn't see a lot of it, but it was, uh, it was beautiful and it was very surreal to be there. Um, yeah. And I would have loved to have spent more time there, but uh, spent most of my time in, in LA. So uh... now, one uh, thing I forgot to mention before Pearl Jam actually became Pearl Jam, they were called Mookie Blaylock. Remember that? I
1: don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I do not. I do not.
0: Yeah, which they obviously had to change it because there's a basketball player called Mookie Blaylock. Um, But I think there was, I think they actually toured with Alice in Chains under the name Mookie Blaylock. um, Oh wow! Before they came became Pearl Jam, so just so much history. It's amazing, and I think a lot of it sort of centres around this album. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't one of the grunge albums that I cottoned onto first. You know, I definitely, it was one of those albums I came back to and began mm-hmm. to appreciate and its importance, I think, just grows over time. Like mm-hmm. I said, particularly when we lost Cornell, you know, he was the guy that spoke about all the others we lost, like Lane Staley yeah, yeah. and Andy Wood, and then we oh. lose him, and it was just like, what? The f- you know, it was just it was too much. Um, so, yeah, I think this album took on even more... Yeah, just I don't know importance. Um, after I he love left.
1: that, I I love I love it. I love that record. I love that mm-hmm. whole era. It's it's instrumental in my life beyond belief. Yeah, beyond belief, beyond yep. belief. It's it's yeah. a part of my fabric. Part of my fabric as a, as a as a person, as a writer, as a musician. It's like I'm just honoured that I got to be a part of it you know, in a small, very, 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 very small way, you know, but mm. I'm honoured how it affected my life, you know.
0: It's not really something you can put into words properly. I think you did well saying what you just said, but I was trying to sum up Nevermind the other night on the podcast what that means to me, and you just can't, like, it's just not something you can get across in words, mm. especially when you're growing up with it and developing your own, self as a musician like you would have done as well um it's just it's everything and uh -hmm. you can't quite find the words for it but i appreciate you coming on the podcast today todd thank you for your time pleasure Um, craig
1: it's an absolute honor to talk about such a phenomenal era that should be always relegated in history is one of the most important eras in music I don't care yep. what anyone says, 60s, 70s, Beatles, whatever, grunge is a phenomenally important part of music history in the world. End yep. of story. And it will be played in 100 years' time.
0: Yep, absolutely. And it, it took influences from all over the place and just, yep.
1: you know, put it all yep. together. All the,
0: all the bands from that scene were quite different as well. You know, yep. Soundgarden were very different to Pearl Jam and Alice were different to Nirvana. They were all very different. And um you know, same with a lot of the bands that didn't see the big success like like the Big Four did, you know, they were all very important to this whole scene as well. And uh even though they didn't have the same record sales, it ties in with the whole fabric of the whole scene and uh mm-hmm. yeah, and it's it's pretty amazing. So thank you for for sharing your stories today and um, hopefully we can do another one of these soon on another one of our favorite albums. I'd love to get you back on again.
1: Pleasure pleasure I don't know what next uh, era would we'll do, but <laughs> <We'll> work <laughs> on it, it. We'll, we'll work on it. <laughs> yep. pleasure Craig, thanks for having me man uh, you're doing great with the podcast I'm uh, I'm proud of you and, you know, number 67, man, get to 200, you know.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll catch you again soon for another episode of Fox on the Wire.